Disquiet on the Western Front, 08. That the old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. That the old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. That the old growth forest is about the survival of our culture. So let's come back to the initial point. What is deforestation? Forests aren't simply collections of trees. They're complex systems with hubs and networks that overlap and connect trees and allow them to communicate. The people that are fighting on the ground, who are barricading the roads, who are digging trenches, who are refusing to let the police in, they're the ones that are winning the fight. So let's come back to the initial point. They want more and more and more, and there is no end. And the world is like there is no more control. Uh, what people need is more love and understand each other. I mean, this is not just, you know, right versus left. This is kind of an attack on the whole concept of truth. In the end, yes. physics doesn't care yeah. what your skin is. It just does what it does. And also, no matter how rich you are, you have to breathe. Were we under, were surveillance? We under, surveillance? Were we under surveillance at the time of the bombing? And writes a timber harvest plan, who do they submit it to themselves? And that is a conflict of interest. You've used a number of incendiary words. Conflict of interest. What people need is more love. You must recognize the spirit of the tree within you. It's just learning how to take care of the land. And If you were to go invent a carbon capture machine, you couldn't invent a better machine than a tree. That the gold growth forest is about survival. That the gold growth forest is about survival. That the gold growth forest is about You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices of the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. This is Chad Swimmer, coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and coast Yuki. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Disquiet on the Western Front. I'm Chad Swimmer. Today on the show, we're going to be looking at two very different aspects of activism. First, we're going to talk to Tom Wheeler and Matt Simmons of the Environmental Protection Information Center in Arcata, California. And they're going to be talking about legal activism, a crucial part of most successful movements. Then we're going to go down to Berkeley and we're going to speak with Andrea Pritchett one of the co-founders of Berkeley Cop Watch, and she's going to give us an update on the happenings in People's Park. Would that I could turn a phrase Just to turn you around But all systems go there grinding Harder more All systems go ahead I'm speaking with Tom Wheeler and Matt Simmons of the Environmental Protection Information Center in Arcata, California. Tom is the executive director and Matt is a staff attorney, but both are environmental lawyers and they've been working hard on this Jackson State issue for almost two years now. Matt, can you give us some updates on what's going on? Yeah. So the pause on logging uh, that has been in effect for uh, a little over a year uh, is still ongoing. This is due to our sort of multi-pronged efforts to uh, let the state know that the way they were managing the forest is not in the public interest. And I think as part of that pause, Cal Fire has been trying to 
reach out to the public and make some concessions. They've been negotiating with the tribes. There was a recent news article in the Press Democrat that that Cal Fire is planning on trying to get a hundred truckloads of down logs out of the red tail timber harvest plant. And these have been out there for a year since direct activists stopped the operations. Uh, the coalition, and I, I want to be clear that the coalition is not the tribe and the coalition does not speak for the tribe. Uh, the coalition sent a sternly worded letter uh, to Cal Fire regarding these red tail logs. The reason being that in order to retrieve the logs, Cal Fire is going to have to construct, I believe it's 10 uh, new skid trails sort of down to the forest floor from the ridge tops. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they'll be sawing new trees down. They'll be constructing those new skid trails. They'll be dragging the logs up. And all of that is going to uh, produce additional damage. Uh, and so in the coalition's eyes, that is management activity uh, similar to like normal logging that should not resume until a compromise can be reached uh, with the public and the tribes. Mm-hmm. So this one I'd, I'd direct to Tom that it's kind of a given that any social movement for political change needs to be multifaceted to be successful. And the events of the last two years in Jackson have shown this clearly with Cal Fire being assailed on all sides by the Pomo tribes, their allies, public comments, direct activists, newspaper editorials, but also, of course, EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center. Can you lay out the various legal tactics that have been used and what you feel has been the most successful? Well, as much as I want to take credit for for things that EPIC did, I I have to give all all, all my love to the forest activists who have put their bodies on the line to defend these trees who got up every morning at the crack of dawn to get out into the woods to to bear witness to to stop the logging. They are the folks who I, I will give um, the bulk of the credit to. To the extent that Epic played a role, um, we uh, we engaged on Timber Harvest Plan Review. Um, my colleague Matt Simmons did just the best job imaginable in digging into uh, the open timber harvest plans that were before us. Um, so we submitted very extensive and thorough comments that um, would have laid the ground for litigation, successful litigation. And I think that Cal Fire knew that we were getting armed, that we were preparing ourselves for litigation. Um, and was nervous and ultimately didn't approve any of these timber harvest plans uh, because of the potential threat. So um, kudos as well to Matt for a good job there. So I got a call from you four months ago and we were just walking into a JAG meeting out in the woods and you had come up with this information that Cal Fire had been hiding the original text of agency comments behind a firewall on their website, on the Caltrees website. And this seemed to play out into something larger. And my belief is, is that this was kind of the last straw for Cal Fire and their decision to withdraw these three timber harvest plans, Little North Fork, Big River, Mitchell Creek, and Boundary Creek. Can you elaborate on how this came about? So Epic discovered that Cal Fire was editing questions submitted by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife to foresters who wrote THPs. And this was being done in a way to uh, blunt the questions of CDFW, to remove issues of controversy, and to reframe questions to be more sympathetic to the forester who submitted the the timber harvest plan or the timber harvest plan itself. So for example, what we have seen is Cal Fire editing questions to remove reference to a controversy that exists, a disagreement between the Department of Fish and Wildlife and Cal Fire about whether timber companies can log historic nest sites for northern spotted owls. Mm -hmm. Um, The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and CDFW has have historically taken the position that no, you may not, and that you can't guarantee that take won't occur of northern spotted owls if you do so. Cal Fire disagrees because Cal Fire is in the business of authorizing logging. 
So they they have removed questions about the appropriateness of logging historic nest trees, mm-hmm. for example. And we've discovered that this is a widespread practice, although it's particularly uh, occurring in Mendocino County. And it has occurred on timber harvest plants within the Jackson Demonstration State Forest. So in the Jackson, what this means is that Cal Fire writes the timber harvest plans. Cal Fire edits the questions that are asked by other agencies that might be critical of the timber harvest plans that they write. And then Cal Fire ultimately approves those same timber harvest plans. So Cal Fire is judge, jury, and executioner in this situation. And so um, I've been particularly alarmed by this practice on the Jackson. And I hope that Epic bringing this to light will cause uh, change within Cal Fire and will cause them to stop doing this. And if they don't, what we've told the agency is that we are going to refer them for prosecution uh, to the California Attorney General's office. Yeah. So I'm curious if either of you know how extensive this actually is. You uncovered it with a, a California Public Records Act request, but do you know, is this something that's going on, say, in Kern County? Is this going on in Del Norte County? So here's what we know. There are at least two RPFs that engage in this practice, both of whom primarily monitor Mendocino County, one of whom is even more egregious and um, does this more than his other colleague. So I I think that the, the practice here is limited to a few bad apples. That said, there are too many timber harvest plans for Epic to effectively do this. So what we've done is we've posted the comments submitted by CDFW for region one of, uh, of the agency, which is Northwest California. Uh, you can find them on our website. And so if you are reviewing a timber harvest plan, my suggestion is, is to check out the questions as asked by CDFW and compare them to the questions that Cal Fire purports to have asked on behalf of CDFW and see if it changes. Because it seems like that goes contrary to the spirit of the forest practice rules that, you know, an informed public is crucial to the review of a timber harvest plan. Maybe Matt can elaborate on this. We in Mendocino County, with Matt's help, have submitted a number of Public Records Act requests, and Matt as well has done quite a few. And I'm wondering what you would say are the best uses and the most important limitations of a CPRA request, and how can an individual take advantage of this law? Thanks, Chad. That's a good question. You know, the Public Records Act request exists so that the public can hold state agencies and governments accountable. Um, And so it's incredibly useful when you sort of sense that something fishy is going on. Uh, It's not so useful if you have like a very vague sense, because if you ask a question that's too vague, they don't have to respond, right? Like you can't ask for every document they've ever produced, right? That's, it's too much. So you need some specificity in terms of what you're asking for and some sort of hunch, uh, right? And so a lot of work going into writing a public records request is sort of narrowing down and putting a box around like the world of information that you're trying to find out about. I, you know, it's also really, really valuable for catching them in a lie, right? So if you, if their tone changes about something like a complete 180, Right. There was probably some emails sent during that time where they all decided to change their tone about something. And you can public records that request those sorts of communications. And you could say it like between this state and this state was an email ever sent on the subject of X. Right. And that's that's narrow enough that they can respond to it. And hopefully you can find the kind of information you're looking for. You know, Epic sends a lot of PRAs and I think we tend to annoy (laughs) people when we do. But I, I also think they're annoyed because they don't like that we know what they're doing, right? And that's exactly the opposite of their responsibility and duty as state actors. You know, if you, if you don't want the public to have access to your information, go into the private sector, right? Like, don't work on behalf of the people of California. 
that's my that's my pitch for sunshine laws i guess yeah and it seems like that the first one that i submitted with matt's help was to find out how much money cal fire was spending on security in the casper 500 timber harvest plan and First, they put me off because they can put you off by a certain amount of time and keep asking for extensions. And at some point, we sent an email that said, you know, we would like the information now. And so they submitted the info, they gave us the information, and immediately the security disappeared. So we don't know if it's because of our requests, but it seemed to be pretty embarrassing information that, mm-hmm. you know, about. The, the equivalent of 22% of their annual budget was being spent on kind of good-for-nothing security on a road that nothing was happening on. Uh, $900,000 a year is a lot of money in a small budget. And so they they didn't want it to go any further. So they sent the security home. So it seems like that Public Records Act request was very effective. And in this case, with you know the firewalling of documents, it seems pretty incredible as well. I, this is speculation. Uh, so I just want to say I'm not thinking of anyone specific or anything specific that's ever happened. But often the part of the agency that receives the Public Records Act request is a different part than the part of the agency that's doing the thing that you uh, are concerned about. Yes. And so it's actually a kind of a, a way for the public to inform other members of the agency about sort of bad apples within their agency Right. And so, you know, for that example, I'm not saying this is what happened, but theoretically, someone receives the Public Records Act request for that spending. They hadn't heard about the spending. They go, oh, how much are we spending on this again to their colleague? And then, you know, that leads to the, oh, maybe we shouldn't actually be spending this much money. <laughs> um, that is that is not what that law is for. Uh, but it is maybe a incidental uh, effect that your public records act request could have. Yeah. Tom. Well, I, I think that we've made some of our, our biggest changes in the Jackson because of a name and shame campaign. Um, we called out Cal Fire's climate denial in their timber harvest plans, and then they had to retract that and with their tail between their legs uh, come back and say, oh, well, that was that was written in error. Uh, we've gotten them to drop security by outlining how much money they're spending on these things. Um, we've shown uh, that they are lying about the size of trees that they're removing, that they're removing remnant old growth or mature uh, second growth trees, uh, although they, they claim not to. So... Um, I, I appreciate all the eyeballs that we can get on the Jackson because I, I think that the more sunshine we shine onto that forest, the more uh, the public and the state of California will see that Cal Fire has been utterly mismanaging it uh, for the last, what, 70 years. Yeah. And I can, you know, I can say that this is all really effective legal activism, but the multifaceted campaign is, is that we wouldn't have put in these Public Records Act requests if they hadn't have felt the need to spend a lot of money on security because of the direct activists. You know, just as we're trying to protect the ecosystems of the Jackson, we function together as our own ecosystem. Each of us fulfill a niche within the group. So um, proud to work with everybody in the Save Jackson Coalition. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is one more question I have for you. And For those of us who are involved in activism on the ground, we often have a lot of confusion as to which lawyers do and are capable of what. So can you lay out, say, the different scopes of expertise of EPIC and, for instance, the CLDC, the Civil Liberties Defense Center in Eugene, Oregon? Well, I will say that Matt's becoming uh, an expert on more and more. If you ever have a question, feel free to email him at matt at wildcalifornia.org. Here it comes, Matt. There it comes. Um, And if we don't know an answer to the question here at Epic, we generally will know somebody that we can refer you to. And having it come from Epic um, can often have your question answered more promptly than if you were to just ask it as a member of the public. So feel free to use us as a resource in that manner. I I have to give the lawyer uh, asterisk there. We we are not (laughs) saying we represent you or that we are giving you legal advice. Uh, we give general advice about the law. 
Uh, we are, but we are never your attorneys and don't ever read anything on our website and think that it's legal advice specific to you or that we have an attorney client relationship. All right. Uh, see, Matt's a better attorney than I am in that respect. But what, what we're good at at Epic is strategy and organizing to build litigation. So yeah. we have done this for now 45 years. We've worked to develop uh, cases and to get those cases into court. We're often represented by other outside attorneys, frequently from organizations like uh, Earth Justice or the Western Environmental Law Center or the Center for Biological Diversity. We also work in partnership with groups that help defend the rights of forest defenders like the the Civil Liberties Defense Center based out of Eugene, Oregon. So uh, again, we are an ecosystem of, of environmental advocates and we are here to to serve our community. I'll, I'll just say, going off of that, you know, another difference between Epic and Civil Liberties Defense Center is that we're just, we're dealing with two totally different worlds in terms of the law. I mean, uh, CLDC is basically doing criminal defense, right, for someone who's been arrested, trespassing or protesting. They also do, uh, you know, civil rights law for where you are allowed to protest, how you're allowed to protest. Tom and I are focused much more on environmental law, uh, which is, you know, a whole other animal. They're two completely different classes you take at law school. I have I have friends who know a lot about one and not anything about the other. I don't know very much about civil rights law, except for what I was required to learn for the bar. Uh, and so you really want to make sure you are talking to someone with expertise when you uh, are dealing with these issues. And so asking anyone who's a lawyer like to solve your legal problem doesn't work because most lawyers don't know most of the law. Tell me which way forward shall I thank my lucky star? Tell me which way forward let us go and far beyond. Something about being pool that seems to keep you poor. And don't let them see the hunger in your eyes. the Rebecca Riots, Which Way Forward. So I wanted to kind of play devil's advocate, but also uh, epic advocate that I've been working with you for two years now. And there have been a number of people, including two lawyers down here who have said, well, epic is being very tepid on this. They should be more aggressive. And I said, well, they're being realistic. And, you know, Tom Wheeler said to us that you can do this if you want, but you could spend a hundred thousand dollars on this case. You need to raise a lot of money and it's a long shot. And it seems like what's developed out of that has been the, rather the opposite of tepid, pretty aggressive, you know, PRA requests of which have yielded a lot and some pretty incredible public comments, which have let the agency know that we mean business. And it's, been pretty impressive, but also, you know, looking at Friends of Guadalajara River, that they had um, a large scale litigation action that cost a ton of money. And Epic is doing a good job, but it's not free. Yeah. Th thanks, Chad. And that's true. Um, it, it takes resources to do this work, both uh, to pay for Matt and I. Our, our, our staff salary, which um, um, is not much. So you're, you're having an effective 
uh, use of your donation dollars when you support Epic because most of it goes back to staff and we don't pay each other very well. So uh, we can spread that money further. Um, and litigation is itself expensive too. Um, and we are constrained in what we can do by our budget. So uh, if you want to see Epic um, sue more people, uh, do more work, there's a dollar amount that, that comes. <laughs> so so please donate at wildcalifornia.org. I'll also just say, Chad, to what you were saying, like if you go and hire like a $400 an hour attorney, they'll file a lawsuit on anything you want them to. That doesn't guarantee you a win, right? And because Epic has a limited salary and has to think really carefully about how we spend our time, you know, I don't file, I don't try to file lawsuits that I don't think I can win. That's part of what that tepidness is. It's like a strategic tepidness. It's not, and it's a not waste your, like our donors' money and my time by doing something that I don't think is going to be successful. Yeah. And I, I spoke early on in these, this whole campaign with Sharon Duggan, who used to be on the board of Epic and is a pretty well-known but now retired environmental lawyer. And she was really elaborating on how conservative the legal environment is in California and how how difficult it is to win a case on environmental grounds. But at the same time, you know what? I think this just of uncovering of the internal workings of this timber harvest process has actually been more effective even than going to court. Thanks, Chad. Well, thank you both for your hard work. And um, thank you for being with us. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I'll repeat the call to donate at wildcalifornia.org because we have a lot of work that needs doing on, you know, not just Jackson, but the whole North Coast. I will also give a shout out to Chad. Um, Epic began work in the Jackson because I got an email from some random dude in, in Fort Bragg area named Chad Swimmer. Uh, so Chad has has <laughs> is is largely responsible for this this new generation of JDSF activism. So thanks, Chad, for getting that ball rolling. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Matt. And uh, I definitely recommend this donation and getting an epic shirt. But I also recommend subscribing to their action alerts. There, it's really helpful for an agency to receive four hundred or five hundred public comments. So thanks again. This show originated from KZUIX, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond. Public radio is truly one of the pillars of democracy, but it is not free. In fact, there are serious expenses associated with bringing shows like this to you. If you feel like helping, you can donate to us by going to www.overstand.earth and looking for Disquiet Media. Or by going to www.kzyx.org and clicking the red Donate Now button. Or by donating to whatever station makes a soundtrack for your day. We thank you. Yes. Let's go to our interview with Andrea Pritchett. Andrea is a founding member of Berkeley Cop Watch with over 30 years of experience monitoring police. She's also a member of the People's Park Council, and she was one of the co-founders of the Rebecca Riots, the Radical Folk Trio. And this all sounds pretty admirable, but really the most admirable thing is, is that she is an eighth grade history teacher. We are on. Andrea Pritchett, how are you doing this evening? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for joining us and um, yeah. really appreciate you taking the time. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you come to co-found Berkeley Cop Watch? Yeah, well, I um, I moved to Berkeley in 1981 to go to school at UC Berkeley. And I was very involved in the anti-apartheid movement back then. And um, so I went off and I, I lived in um, Zimbabwe for a couple of years and I came back and was sort of shocked by the um, the situation for unhoused people being in Africa, you know, I sort of uh, kind of, I I saw poor people, but they all had, they weren't, they weren't homeless. You know, everybody had somewhere to be, you know, whether they were, you know, rich or poor, but it was just kind of mind blowing to see how many people were unhoused. And so I wanted to do work with them. And then it became clear that one of the big obstacles to improving the lives of 
homeless people was was to get the police out of their way. The police were throwing people stuff away, chasing them, following them around at night, harassing them and stuff. And so uh, myself and a few friends got together and we said, well, we're going to try to document what happens. We're going to try to leverage our privilege and stand in solidarity with poor folks. And, you know, at the time, Berkeley was also had a lot of counterculture, a lot of young kids of color who would come to the avenue to, you know, buy records and mm-hmm. pizza slices and, you know, just have the young people out at night. And the city really uh, cracked down on it. Yeah. And so they, they used a lot of extra legal means to try to, you know, reclaim the territory from the young and the rest was so we documented it in and realized that um we could try to deter police misconduct just by being present yeah and we've certainly we've certainly evolved since then but but that was the original intent that was in 1990 so i had left the country and come back and just was sort of shocked by the situation yeah so you're presently working on the People's Park situation, and People's Park in Berkeley has been the site of political unrest and protest for a long time, 53 years since 1969 yeah. that I know of. But That's most right. people know little to nothing of this history. Can you give us yes. the Cliff Notes version? Sure. Well, about 1967, you know, if you can go back in time, Berkeley was you know, a hotbed of political activity. And what was happening was that a lot, you know, the Black Panther movement mm-hmm. was very alive in the South Side of Berkeley. You know, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton used to come up onto campus and sell Mao Zedong's Little Red Book to raise money to buy guns <laughs> to provide for their self-defense. And so there was there was um, a, a symbiotic kind of relationship. You know, you've got college-educated young people who have heads full of theory, but not a lot of experience. And here you have these folks from uh, people of people of color, from the neighborhoods, people of color who are saying black power, this is the reality in our neighborhoods. When those two things come together, it's a very you know, combustible material. And the university recognized that. People's Park, the block, the city block where People's Park exists, had houses on it had lots of co-ops and communes and stuff where, you know, youth of color and white college students were mixing and mingling and kind of coming up with revolutionary formations mm-hmm. and, um, and ideas. And, and that's when Stop the Draft Week was. And there was just the, the free speech movement had kind of proliferated and gone in all these different directions, you know, with the founding of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society and, the weather underground and things were really kind of moving. The university wanted to stop that. Yeah. So they, so they went to all the houses on that block and they, and they said, look, you've either got to sell or, you know, we're going to take it. We're using um, eminent domain. We want to build student housing. You got to go. So by hook and by crook, the university was able to get everybody out of that area. They bulldozed all the houses and the lot sat there for two years just a muddy kind of parking lot. Turns out the university didn't actually have the money to build the housing. So in 1969, Michael Delacour and some other folks decided to make a park there. Yeah. So they, they, they put out the call and folks came and it, it, it gained traction in the community. And, and soon everybody, there was like, you know, grandmothers and children. It was very, very inclusive, very community-wide. And people loved what they had built. Mm-hmm. But the university claimed that they owned it. Now, this, the, the activists were saying, what do you mean? You, you mean you stole it fair and square? You know, you stole it from who? The Ohlone people? You stole it from these people who had their houses? Who did you steal it from? And why do you think you have a claim? So people, many people don't even uh, legitimize UC's claim to that land. Mm-hmm. So a park was built. And then the university reasserted its authority and they put a fence around it. And so there was a protest on the UC campus, about 5,000 people uh, gathered. And they walked down Telegraph Avenue and they said, take the park now. Hmm. People walked down the street and there was the Alameda County Sheriff's with their shotguns full of buckshot. And um, things were tense. Somebody turned on a fire hose 
and boom, it was it was everywhere. People were trying to take down the fences. The Alameda County Sheriff's were shooting people. Um, one person died. A man named James Rector was shot and killed on a rooftop. Mm. Another man was blinded, was permanently blinded, and hundreds of others were shot. And um, you know, at that time, if you if you showed up at the emergency room with with buckshot in you, they would arrest you. So people didn't go to the hospital. A lot of them. Wow. There were there's something called the Berkeley Free Clinic here in Berkeley. That was started by by medics from Vietnam who started out doing triage and street medicine to attend to the to the protesters who were basically in pitched battle with the county sheriffs. People throwing rocks and bottles, sheriffs shooting, people, you know, tear gas going back and forth. It was quite a battle. And it resulted in President, not President, Governor Ronald Reagan at the time mm-hmm. declared, hey, if there's going to be a bloodbath, you know, let it be in Berkeley, you know, and they, he determined, so he sent in the National Guard. Yeah. And for like a month, Berkeley was under martial law. And the old timers can tell you that, that with that, with the bayonets, with the razor wire, also came helicopters with tear gas and they mass gas. They tried to just mass gas the protesters, but the winds took that tear gas down to the middle school where I work. So school children were getting tear gassed. It was in, it was midday. Whoa! So so that tear gassing was so extreme that it it affected the whole community. And so when people wonder, like, well, how did Berkeley get to be the People's Republic of Berkeley or Berserkly or whatever? <laughs> it's because because that experience, that extreme experience of police and state power, really kind of shocked people into an awareness that we had to create some controls on those powers. So Berkeley became the first city in the nation to create a civilian review board Hmm. and actually involve civilians in the process of, of police oversight. Yeah. So what is the current situation in people's park? What's the UC trying to do and why are people trying to stop it? Yeah. Well, there have been a number of times when the UC has since, since the sixties, they keep coming back. You know, they came back in late in the late seventies, and they they paved it. They put a parking lot down there, and the people got together with pickaxes and shovels, and they pulled up that asphalt. Wow! And they refused to let the park be paved over. Then, in nineteen ninety and ninety one, the university had this idea that that what we really needed was volleyball courts, <laughs> some sand volleyball. You know, it's sort of like this Marie Antoinette kind of let them eat cake kind of attitude. It's like, here we've got poor people, like seriously poor people, unhoused people, gaping needs in mental health and, you know, addiction services. And what they give us is volleyball, you know, and and their hope was to displace the unhoused population by bringing gleeful students down to have a noontime sand volleyball game or whatever. It took them 900 cops in 1991 to impose those volleyball courts on our community against our will, against our wishes. Yeah. And, um, and that struggle went on for some years. And about five years after they put them in, they took them out. Wow. Because the people resisted. First of all, the people resisted. I mean, somebody drove a car into the volleyball court. It was a big sand. It looked like a giant kitty litter box. It was, they used, you know, they used, they used ancient redwood to create this volleyball court. So it was beautiful and tragic that <laughs> some trees were wasted in this process. Yeah. But uh, yeah, people would, one guy, they, they tried to burn it down. Somebody took a chainsaw and cut the, it was very clear that people were not into it. And so, um, and David Nadell, bless his heart, he was the guy who owns a, a club up here called the Ashkenaz. And he, back then, he, he dedicated every weekend, he put signs up all around the entirety of the volleyball court. So if you were going to play volleyball, you had to essentially cross his picket line, which was posters that had the history of People's Park and, you know, uh, analysis and um, news about the park. So he, for two years, he did that. And so ultimately, the, the volleyball courts were taken out. Now what's happening is the university's 
they're, they're saying that what they need to do is build student housing again. But here's the problem. The university creates something called a long-range development plan. And in their plan, they had said that, well, we're going to increase undergraduate enrollment by about 3,000 students. In actuality, they increased it by about 11,000. Wow. Now, in a city, yeah. So in a city that has a terrible housing crisis anyway, we've experienced huge gentrification. Once upon a time, this town was about 25% African-American. Now, I would say we're somewhere down between 5 and 8%. You know, folks have been leaving. And, and, and so to introduce, you know, 8,000 more students than, we, than you even planned for is outrageous. And actually, a judge found it to be true that the UC was not allowed to admit that many students. Hmm. And if you recall, a few months ago, the, the UC actually had to send out letters to all the kids that they had. Um, admitted for this fall and say, well, things are kind of in flux and blah, blah, blah. Guess what? Gavin Newsom, with the help, I think, of Nancy Skinner, they actually changed the law to allow them to make this huge increase. And it really begs the question, you know, at some point, you know, we're, we, were, we were a town for many years of about 110,000 people. The university had about 33,000 students. They want to bump that up to about 44,000. That's, that's like saying your town is going to grow by 10%. You know, like that's a huge increase. And I don't feel like they've prepared for it. And that's, that's some of what's going to be examined in court. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a group called the People's Park Historic District and advocacy, advocacy Group. And they've been waging legal challenges. And actually, there's a group of neighbors who are also. Uh, challenging this kind of um, unrestrained growth on the part of the UC. Will there be a town? Does Berkeley have a right to exist as an autonomous town in the midst of being taken over by UC? You know, that, you know, every resource, every building is supposed to somehow cater to the needs of people who have never set foot in this town. Yeah. You know, that, that we're losing our generations of, of, like I say, African-American people, generations of, of Berkeley residents who can no longer afford to live here in favor of people from Pennsylvania and, and even, you know, and, and, and overseas as well, foreign, foreign students who bring in so much more money yeah. than, than a, a California resident. And as you know, the, the courts have decided that Berkeley had to en- en- enroll more residents of California, hmm. you know, that they've been ordered to kind of back off on this, like, because, yeah, foreign students are way more profitable. Anyway, so so in this latest scenario, they proposed, I think it's, I think it's 18 stories of student housing. They want to, they want to house 1,100 students on that land. Mm-hmm. And to kind of sweeten the deal, they said, well, we're going to go ahead and we'll have a low income. We'll have 120, we'll have another building. That's 125 units uh, for low-income people. Now, lo- whatever low-income means in Berkeley, you know, as a teacher, I teach middle school. I- I'm not sure that I would qualify, but but they say that they're really they really want to target some of the some of the lower-income people, and it raises a few questions. And they, and they and they also say that 60% of People's Park will will be green space, and they're going to create a monument to honor People's Park. Which is very well. How, how very nice of you. They say, "Well, we're going to kill your your legacy. We're going to destroy your park, but we will make the gravestone really nice." You know, yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not really that. That it doesn't really satisfy. If you know what I mean.
That was Rebecca Riots, the radical folk trio founded by our guest, Andrea Pritchett. You are listening to Disquiet on the Western Front. And we are talking about the history of People's Park, Berkeley, and the UC's present attempts to once again destroy the park. So we're opposed, and obviously we want housing for unhoused people. But we don't believe that we have to sacrifice We believe that we have the right to housing and a park. We have the right to housing and our history. And I'm happy to report that, that, um, I think it was just in May, that People's Park was added to the National Registry of Historic Places. And so, so somebody believes that there was a, there was, that the 60s actually happened. Somebody believes that there actually was a movement. There actually was a vision that, that has come to be the identity of Berkeley. And it's really hard to imagine how, how our city council can fail to see that. Now, now, they blame People's Park for all these problems. And I have to say, you know, it, it, it depends on what lens you're looking at it mm-hmm. through. I'm, you know, is there a crime in People's Park? Sure. Are there people with mental health disabilities? Yep. Drug addicted individuals? Yeah, I think we could find some. What you can also find is a community of care that is struggling to meet the needs of those people. You can go on any day. You'll see, you know, yesterday the Coptic Christians and the Hare Krishnas came to feed people, bringing their food. People come in, they say, "I'm, I'm homeless. I just got out of jail. I don't have anything. I have nowhere to sleep. Okay, we'll find you a tent. You know, and, and there are networks and systems. There's a there's kind of a a community network, kind of an infrastructure um, of volunteers and mutual aid that that kept hundreds of people uh, alive during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like people aren't really supposed to be living in people's park. People. No, then you talk about People's Park residents, it means that they're temporarily taking shelter there. Nobody lives in the park. We're trying to have a park. And we're trying to have a place that is a commons that is not dominated by the university. Because as soon as the university gets its hands on something, then you'll have police telling people you're trespassing, you got to go. They have their subtle ways of making people feel very unwelcome. That's what, that's what we're looking at. I can also say that the university has been incredibly negligent in its, you know, if it claims that this is their property, they've done a horrible job of taking care of it. Horrible. You know, they, they brag that, oh, well, we got a social worker and we've been doing all this wonderful work with the unhoused. Hey, man, you're late to the party, you see. You're 51 years late to the party. So they had a guy, they had a social worker named Ari. Sure, he gives out tents. Sure, he was helping people find housing. And he was trying, you know, and, 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 and that's positive. And, and, and the residents, the homeless folks say, yeah, he was helpful. You know, that's great. Did they water the grass? Did they take care of the greenery? Did they do any of the things that they do for any of the other parks, any other of the grounds that they keep? No. The bathroom? It's not really a bathroom. It's a it's a concrete structure. The faucets you can't even really you can't put your hand under the faucet. You know, there's a little stream about the like what you would do in like a like a plastic straws kind of width of of water that comes out. It's not possible to wash your hands properly in this in this structure, and it's rarely maintained. And there was a slap suit, a strategic lawsuit against public participation that was brought by the university back in the 90s during the, the volleyball chapter of the saga. And it's a, partici- it's a lawsuit that says anybody who constructs anything, who alters the landscape, who does this, could be sued by the university. Wow. So when we try to put a free box back in there, cops come, take it out. You gotta really, you're really risking you know, getting sued. Wow. So when you look at this, when you look at like the conditions of People's Park, it's it's amazing. It's as good as it is because it's purely a labor of love. It's purely people volunteering, giving their time. 
they're gardening on a volunteer basis. So it's quite amazing, you know, what we accomplish without the government, without, you know, and in fact, you know, as we try to exist despite the government and despite UC. So recently the UC came in in the middle of the night and started cutting trees and, and preparing for their construction. Yeah, on August 3rd, uh, the university came in. You know, we have this bulldozer alert. If you text SAVE THE PARK, all one word, all capitals, to 74121, you can be added to a text alert system. And so we got word that there were bulldozers being shipped into the park. So we activated the, the bulldozer alarm. And um, I went to the park. I got there about midnight, 1230 on August 3rd. And it was just, man, a massive convoy of bulldozers and um, backhoes and all kinds of construction. And they, it was like a SWAT, you know, operation. They just went to work. They had these panels of fencing, which are kind of like you can't climb them because they're woven so tightly. And they're kind of razor sharp at the top. You, they can really cut your hands. Those things, they, they take big metal plates and they put them on the sidewalk and they were screwing them into the concrete. And then they were able to slide the panels of fencing onto poles. So this was very secure fencing. Or so they thought. <laughs> um, because So myself and a couple of others, we sat on the sidewalk in front of the park and tried to block the entrance of bulldozers from coming in. We were arrested. A couple other folks a little farther away were, were trying to block the, the introduction of the bobcats. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And um, so they were trying to block that kind of stuff. They got arrested as well. So we were, we were released, strangely, <clears throat> a couple hours later. But they had put up the fence. It was all the way around the park. But people were gathering and people were resisting and they were shaking the fence and they were pushing on the fence. And somebody got a, a bolt cutters and they clipped some of the fence. And, you know, between the clipping and the pushing and the this and that, they, they got uh, one section of the fence to go down. And once one section went down, it kind of, you know, once they got a fence open, they got they actually opened it up like a door and they got in the way of that. And it looked like the police. I, I don't know. Honestly, Chad, it, it's hard to say. I think the, the, the police tactically didn't really understand what their mission was. It, it looked like they were fairly confused. And so between their confusion and the people's determination, those those bolts between the panels were cut. People pushed and rocked the fence, and so it fell down in places. And eventually, eventually the UC gave up. Eventually, they they called it off. And I don't know if it was the construction company that said they didn't want to do it, or I, I don't really understand. But what we saw was the police, and there were lots of California Highway Patrol. There was UC Berkeley, and there were... Uh, Cal State, I think San Francisco officers who had come. I'm not sure where other departments were there, but there was a good number of them. We saw 70 or 100 of them just withdraw, walk up the street when they realized that the fence was down and they couldn't keep people out. But what was also odd is that they left four bulldozers and a backhoe in the park. So all these trees were cut down though. What they did manage, what the UC did manage to do was cut almost all of the trees down. And it, it was without, I don't know, there was no, no discretion in it. They just leveled it. So what we said, and people, you should have heard the people cry out. You know, this 50 year old palm tree came down and, and people cried like, like, like they lost a friend because they did, you know, they, these are long, these are not, these are people who've been going to the park like most of their lives. So it was, it was, it was very emotional that day. We lost a lot. And so the park was surrounded by 
broken fences, felled trees, branches everywhere. And for weeks prior to the incursion, they had been bringing these giant truckloads of mulch, like six foot high piles of mulch. And they brought in these dead eucalyptus logs. The theory was that they would stop people from pitching tents. That if they occupied the area with these logs and these piles of mulch, that people would be dissuaded from setting up residence there. They had spent, and UC had spent great effort to try to, you know, entice people out of the park with the promise of, of housing. They said, hey, if you give up your tent and you come with us, go to this roadway in on University Avenue. That will lead, we can get you 18 months of housing. Wouldn't you like that? People were like, sure. Well, as soon as they got them out of the park, you know, then we hear like, oh, well, they said six months. Oh, it's down to three months. You know, and they started, the university started to change the terms. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so the park was devastated. But the good news is that we had put out the call for a rally at five o'clock. And even though UC Berkeley students were not in session, the, the college hasn't started its fall semester and the summer session was out, I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand people showed up. And they marched from Sproul Plaza down to where People's Park was. And we had a rally. And people spoke out and it was very touching. It was really beautiful. Really beautiful. But but now what do we do? You know, the university or the, the contractor left four bulldozers and this backhoe. And and of course they're gonna get vandalized. Yeah. You know, I mean, let's take the temperature of, of the situation. And so then it was, you know, <laughs> people wanted to disable those bulldozers. So um, they cut cables and people did this and that and what, what. So those bulldozers are trashed. And I think, I think bottom line, they miscalculated the depth of our feeling for the park. You know, they just kind of wrote it off. It's like, oh, no, the only people who care about this are mentally ill and drug addicts. We can we can shove this down their throats, no problem. And they they just really did not, they didn't take the, the temperature of the community, although we tried. Yeah. We tried to tell them. We tried to say, man, this is not, you're, you're, you're hitting a nerve here and you're going to wake up a, a sleeping giant, which I think they've done. And so where we're at now is that they, you know, the, the whole project, the whole construction project hinges on this environmental impact report mm-hmm. and did, was an adequate consideration done by the university in thinking about alternative locations and thinking about impact and thinking about who's going to be hurt by this. And so in October, there's a court date. Construction will be stayed until that time. However, the UC is not prohibited from putting a fence back up. And so it's entirely possible that once they do get those toxic, leaky, broken bulldozers out of the park, that they may want to try to put a fence up again. How can people who live up here in Northern California help? Well, I think it's important to just stay, first of all, just stay informed. If you go to www.peoplespark.org, mm-hmm. you can, I think our, 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 our web supervisor has done a good job of, you know, putting these updates on and sharing pictures and videos of the struggle. But I think it's also, you know, important to ask some of the bigger questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why... Does the city have a right, does a people in a city, does a community have a right to exist? Do we have a right to a history? Do we have a right to, you know, remember the legacy of of struggle and and the legacy of counterculture? Contacting the city council of Berkeley might be a good way, but contacting the regents is also, I think, an important way to let them know that, no, it's not just you keep building, you know, and, and, you know, with no restraint, with no brakes on it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it'd be great if people would contact the regents and, and let their voices be known. Every Californian has a stake in this. Yes. 
every California has a right to to contact the regions about this. And you know, maybe it's maybe it's time to talk about reclaiming public education. You know, the, the university's been transformed in recent years. You know, when I went to when I went to Cal, we paid a registration fee. And for less than a thousand dollars a year, I was able to get an education at UC Berkeley. Yeah. Because because the charter of the university says that every Californian has a right to a higher education. That's in the charter of the university itself. Yes, they're violating the charter. Yes. Now at this point, I think only sixteen percent of their budget comes from the state, and the rest is from tuition. And from corporate donations, you know, from the likes of BP or, you know, Hewlett Packard or, you know, this kind of thing. But those are our buildings. We paid for them. Yeah. Those are our universities. We paid for them. And so we need to reclaim them for the benefit of education and not simply, you know, cheap research and development for, you know, global corporations. It's it's ours. It should be it. It should be about educating our people. Yeah. So I think there are some bigger questions that need to be asked in this whole thing. You know, the purpose of the university and how well does it serve the people of California? Would that I could turn a phrase. Just a time you're around But all systems go there grinding harder more All systems go ahead Don't be a policeman, don't be a fool Go ask the weather man, it ain't made it comes It just comes Together, hold together to disquiet on the western front well we just have a couple more minutes and i would love to let people know that the music we're playing accompanying this interview and the rest of the show is from rebecca riots and (laughs) riots is was your band how do you articulate the intersection between music and activism well you know music it's all it's all about expression you know, it's 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 a refuge for myself. Just making music just kind of keeps me balanced and keeps me feeling sane. And um, but it's also about about trying to. And sometimes when when we can't when I can't win somebody over in a in a in a in an argument or a discussion, that, that sometimes music can reach places in the heart that that my rhetoric fails to do. And just helping to normalize resistance and normalize um, political discussion and consideration. And that, that's what it's been about for me is to try to make that, you know, part of the culture. And I think movements grow out of culture, you know, and they flourish. Movements can flourish. And when we have a culture that supports, supports it. So, so it's a dynamic relationship. Yeah. You know, the music influences this and, 
the politics influences the music. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, for being with us. And definitely, let's check in. Let's check in sometime in October after the court date, and um, yeah, we can let you know. Or, or you know, who knows? It's a dynamic situation. So the university, you know, is very. It's very possible that they could make a move at any time. Thank you for spending the hour with me, Chad Swimmer, here on Disquiet on the Western Front. I would like to thank my guests, Matt Simmons, Tom Wheeler, and Andrea Pritchett. This show has been a production of KZYX Public Broadcasting from Mendocino County and Disquiet Media, a program of Overstand.Earth, protecting forests and promoting social justice through modern activism. Check us out at www.disquietmedia.blue and www.overstand.earth. The views and opinions expressed are only those of myself, my co-hosts, and my guests, not necessarily those of KZYX staff or management, the staff or management of any of our partner stations, or of the board of Overstand. Disquiet Media. The dissonance is deafening.